Our scripture lesson comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 5. Joshua, chapter 5. Hear now the word of our God. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'araloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, Yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have, re- I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. We have crossed over the Jordan. We've entered the promised land. As we've seen, the the book of Joshua begins, the whole first section is all about crossing over. The theme is crossing over. Uh, Now we are coming to the central section of the book of Joshua, where the theme will be taking possession of the land. Then the last two sections will be dividing the land and then worshiping God. God had promised this land to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and he had said that their heirs, their descendants, would take possession of the land of Canaan. So the leading verbs in this section of the book, not surprisingly, is the verb to take possession. Now the opening line of this section highlights the response of the kings of the Amorites and the kings of the Canaanites, that when the kings of the Amorites and the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. When they hear that God has done for Israel 
what he had done before. We, we heard last, uh, a few weeks ago, that, that Rahab had heard about what God had done in Egypt. Rahab had heard, and she, and she tells the spies, everybody, the hearts of the people have melted because they've heard about the Exodus. They've heard about what God did in the Red, to the Red Sea. But there's always the question, is God tired of his people? Has he given up on them? And especially, well, we heard about the rebellion in the wilderness. We heard about how Israel's not being very faithful to God. Maybe their God will give up on them. But now, God has parted the Jordan River. And so their hearts melt. Now, in the Exodus, God parted the waters. Israel was baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now Joshua and his people are baptized in the Jordan River, consecrated to the work of bringing God's judgment upon the wicked and bringing salvation to those who believe in him. And so the hearts of the kings melt. If, if they had listened to the graybeards among them, they might have heard stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these great patriarchs who had sojourned among them 400 years before. But... From the standpoint of the ancient world, they might have thought, Ah, oh, but their God left them to slavery in Egypt, so maybe he's dissatisfied with them again. They may have taken heart from the great prophet Balaam. We know from, from ancient inscriptions that Balaam was known as a great prophet throughout, throughout the, uh, the realm of, region of Canaan. We have ancient inscriptions in the Jordan River area that, that Balaam was well-respected amongst, amongst the nations of the time. And, okay, Balaam had blessed Israel, and he had spoken of how Yahweh would continue to bless them, but Balaam had taught the Moabites and the Midianites how to curse Israel by leading them astray to worship other gods. We sang about that in Psalm 106. So it's pretty easy to see on the one hand how their hearts melted, but on the other hand, even as their hearts melt, uh, there's two responses. There's two ways you can go when your heart melts. Either you can be like Rahab, and when your heart melts, you then believe in the Lord, or you can then harden your heart and say, okay, so we've got to do anything we can to try to stop this. So their melted hearts did not cause them to give up very quickly. In fact, uh, the opening line of, of chapter 5 is then paralleled further down, in, like for instance in chapter 9, verse 1, as soon as all the kings heard of this, they gathered as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Or chapter 10, verse 1, as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai, he feared greatly, so he said to other kings, come help me. Or in chapter 11, when Yabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he gathered the northern alliance. So melting of hearts does not equal lack of resistance. In the same way, if you think about what happens to today, when a person's heart melts, either, they're, either they repent and believe the gospel, or like the kings of Canaan, they harden their melted hearts and fight like hell. And as we saw this morning, there's appropriate uses for the word hell. Fighting like hell does not just mean working, you know, fighting hard. Fighting like hell means fighting against God. Because that's how hell fights. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we learn from our Lord Jesus, our Lord Joshua, how to prepare for battle against the gates of hell. How do you prepare for battle against the gates of hell? You worship God. 
chapter 5 focuses particularly on the importance of the sacraments in training for battle. The importance of the sacraments in, in the discipleship of the people of God as they're, you know, God doesn't say, ah, so uh, everybody now, you know, sharpen your swords. No, actually it says make flint knives and circumcise everybody. This is a great way to prepare for battle. We're going to incapacitate you so that for the next few days, you're going to be sitting ducks. Great way to train for battle. We uh, we sang Luther's great baptismal hymn last week. Uh, This week, we're seeing the application of it in the circumcision of Israel at the Jordan River. And, and some have been puzzled, but why does it say a second time? Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Uh, if you've already cut off the foreskin, what's left to cut off? But then as you keep going, you're like, oh, oh, oh. They're, they're not being circumcised a second time. This is rather that these people haven't been circumcised at all. The wilderness generation had not been circumcised. Now, it appears to say, because I mean, it says that that... Though all the people who came out of of Egypt had been circumcised, verse 5, yet the people born on the way in the wilderness had not been circumcised. So, for all the generations they were in Egypt, they practiced circumcision. And then, once they say, yes, we're going to follow God, they stop practicing circumcision. What's going on here? Some have thought that God forbade them to circumcise after they had rebelled against him, but the text doesn't say that. Was it part of their parents' rebellion? Or is it God's judgment against them because of their rebellion? Probably the best help we get as to why this is happening, again, we've seen that there's a, this big chiasm in the, in the wilderness. It starts with the Red Sea and then goes to the Jordan River. There's the Passover in Egypt and now the Passover in Canaan. So what happens just before all that? Moses. The call of Moses. Exodus chapter 4. Where we're told that Moses had not circumcised his son while he was in Midian. If you look in Exodus chapter 4 verses 21 to 26, the the Lord has called Moses to go tell Pharaoh, let my son go. And When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I quote that that passage fairly often. What comes next? At a lodging pace... Exodus 4, verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Uh, Let me sort of paraphrase that a little bit to help you see what's happening here. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. Who's the him? This is, he met Moses, or is this Gershom, and sought to put him to death? Because Gershom's the one who's uncircumcised. And so then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, Surely you are a blood relative. That's the term used, a bridegroom of blood, a blood relative. So God let Gershom alone 
it was then that she said blood relative because of the circumcision. So Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. But then we hear that Moses hasn't circumcised his firstborn son. Why not? We hear from, in, in, when, we, when we hear about circumcision in Genesis 8 and 17, uh, the Lord told Abraham that the uncircumcised son was cut off from God's people. And apparently Moses had failed to circumcise Gershom. Why? Probably it's the same reason why the Israelites did not circumcise their children. They were in the wilderness. Circumcision was a sign of the promise, a sign of the blessing of God. But they were under a curse. When Moses was, I mean, Moses was alienated from his people. He was out of Egypt. He was, his people were in Egypt. He was off by himself. He doesn't circumcise his son. I'm not saying he was right to not circumcise his son. I'm not saying Israel was right to not circumcise their sons. But in terms of what's going on in their heads, they're, they're saying, sort of, we are alienated from God, alienated from his people, and so therefore the sign of the promise doesn't apply to me anymore. And so I won't circumcise my children, my sons. Indeed, when Moses fails to circumcise Gershom, God is coming in judgment against him, and Zipporah's action rebukes her husband for his failure. But then again, this is partly because judgment begins with the household of God. Moses had been called to deliver Israel from Egypt, and he can hardly fulfill the role if he himself is a covenant breaker. Now, the, the whole emphasis on the firstborn is poignant in the Passover. I mean, the point of the Passover is that those who do not have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house will lose their firstborn. In Exodus 13, God gives the regulations for the Passover and says to sanctify to me all of the firstborn who whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and animal, it is mine. The firstborn belongs to God. The firstborn of clean animals must be sacrificed. The firstborn of humans must be redeemed through a sacrifice. Actually, as as we come out of the Christmas season, it's worth remembering that our Lord himself was redeemed. In Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, we're told that at 40 days after his birth, that Jesus was brought to the temple and his parents offered the sacrifice to redeem Jesus, their firstborn son. Although he was the redeemer of, of all things, yet because he took the form of our sinful flesh, he had to be redeemed, not, not redeemed from sin, but re- the redemption of the firstborn. He came as the true Son of God. He was all that Israel was supposed to be. And so in a sense, he recapitulates, he reenacts the whole of Israel's history. Hosea spoke of this when he said in Hosea 11, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew takes that text to plainly refer to Jesus. He is the true Israel. And as the true Israel, the true firstborn, Jesus himself had to receive the redemption of the firstborn that he might succeed where Israel failed. And that's what the circumcision of Israel at Gilgal is pointing to. The circumcision of Israel at Gilgal is a moment of of starting over. Israel has failed to be the son of God in the wilderness. And so their lack of circumcision is, is now being corrected as Israel is my son, my firstborn, 
And so now um, Israel is circumcised. And remember what day it is? It's the eighth day. We saw last time that there were there was an eight-day sequence in chapters 2 through 4. The spies spent one night with Rahab where she told them about the, the hearts melting. They spent three days in the hills before reporting to Joshua on the fourth day. Then the next day, Joshua arose and brought Israel to the banks of the Jordan, and they wait for three days, fifth, sixth, seventh. And then on the next day, on the eighth day, they cross the Jordan, and they get, they get circumcised on the eighth day, just like it's supposed to be eight, eight days after they were born. There's, there's, there's a way in which Israel is passing through the Jordan, entering into a new life. This is a, 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 new, a new start, a new beginning for the people of God. Now, then they get circumcised. Well, getting circumcised is uh, extremely painful, especially if for an adult male. Um, so they, they stay in the camp until they're healed. And of course, the, uh, the melted hearts of the kings of Canaan come in rather handy here. Uh, the Israelites are sitting ducks for a few days. But the kings of Canaan are in no condition to take action. The initiative belongs to the Lord and in him to Joshua. Now, in, in verse 9, the Lord explains what all this means. That when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in, the, in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So the reproach of Egypt, the taint of Egypt is rolled away. All of the rebellion in the wilderness had been oriented around going back to Egypt. In Egypt, we, things were, and, and now the reproach of Egypt is rolled away. And that's the, the word Gilgal means to roll. And the place is called Gilgal as a, a, the, as a theme of the new beginning. The story of Gilgal is, is about a fresh start. Israel, the, the firstborn son of God, is starting a new chapter. Will this generation succeed where their fathers failed? Will the nations be blessed through Abraham's seed because of what happens at Gilgal? Gilgal is, is the first encampment of Israel in the promised land. All through the book of Joshua, there's references to the camp at Gilgal. This is where the army returns after every engagement, when they go off to battle against Jericho, and they come back. They come back to Gilgal, and they, this is this is this is sort of the war camp. Uh, basically, the story of the story of the conquest is they come into the middle of the land, they move south, take the south part of the land, then they move north, take the north part of the land. But every time they come back to Gilgal. It, after the time of of Joshua. It remains one of the, the three centers of, of Samuel's ministry. And, um, when Samuel is, uh, he, he judges Israel at Gilgal, at Bethel, and at Mizpah. When King Saul is crowned king, he is crowned at Gilgal. Is it, Gilgal, is, this, this is the place where Israel entered the land. This is the, in a sense you could say, this is the place of the new beginning. This is the place where the, where the Son of God was circumcised and entered into his ministry to bring the blessing of God to the nations. This, this is, Gilgal is where everything starts. <laughs> but by now you, you know this. You know what's coming next. What's going to happen? The story of Gilgal. Well, it was at Gilgal that Saul rebelled against the Lord and disobeyed. At Gilgal, Saul offered sacrifices without waiting for Samuel. At Gilgal, 
Saul brought King Agag. Remember the, the, the Haman, the Agagite from the book of Esther? It was his, you know, Saul had brought his ancestor, Agag, to Gilgal in, with all the plunder in order to have a big you know, worship celebration to the Lord in contrast to what God had told Saul to do. It's why the Lord will say through the prophet Hosea, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Gilgal, the place of new beginnings. The place of second chances. Fails. And so actually, in the book of Kings, the prophet Elijah will go from from Bethel, where Jeroboam's golden calf was, down to Jericho, and back up the Jordan to Gilgal before crossing over the Jordan going back out into the wilderness. As we'll see in the coming weeks, Elijah is retracing the steps of the conquest. When Israel took possession of the land, they entered at Gilgal, and then they went to Jericho, and then they took Bethel. And now Elijah is retracing the steps and going back out of the land, back out into the wilderness, as if to say... Israel has failed. The story is over. It hasn't worked. As the book of Kings portrays it, Elijah, Elijah parts the Jordan River and passes through on dry ground, just like Israel had come in. The Spirit of the Lord is going back out the way he came in. The presence of God will no longer be enough. Will no, will no will longer be with, with Israel. Starting over as we saw this morning, isn't enough. You ever tried to start over? Maybe you had a, a friendship spectacularly implode. Maybe your marriage was on the rocks. How do you start over? There are so many memories. There are so many hurts. He'll just do it again. Every time she uses that tone of voice, I just remember... It's... it's It's not enough to start over. We need a new heart. We need a circumcision, not merely one of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart, as we heard from Deuteronomy this morning. I I quote the Shorter Catechism on repentance a lot, although it may not even be enough. (laughs) What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It's not enough to start over. You must be born again. If, if you're working to try to repair a broken relationship, don't just try to start over. Fresh starts always end in the same place. Rather, go to the cross. See your sin for what it is. See the mercy of Jesus for who he is. And do this together. And then together agree on how you hate your sin. And then turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And this is where... You know, when you when you think that you're hearing the old pattern come back, you also have to remember that this other person who's repenting of their sin hates their sin as much as you hate their sin. 
and the question then for you is, do you hate your own sin as much as they hate your sin? Because <laughs> so often we hate the other person's sin more than we hate our own sin. And that gets us in trouble every time. But now, notice also who is circumcised at Gilgal. It's the whole people. Obviously, the males were not. They, they didn't practice female circumcision. It's partic- and particularly the point here. This is the army. This is the war camp. The whole army is circumcised. It, if you think about it, there's there were probably many in the war camp, many of the soldiers who did they really believe. Uh, that's not actually the point. This is actually very much like the 5th century conversion of a British tribe where the whole tribe was baptized in a single day. Or like an African tribe in the early 20th century where 90,000 were baptized at once because their chief had become a Christian. Because this is where when the circumcision of Israel is taking place because Israel is the people of God. Baptism is where God puts his name on you. You are baptized into Christ. And if anyone is in Christ, Paul says, there is a new creation. In a sense, your baptism is your enrollment in the army of the Lord of hosts. Your baptism is about how you have passed from death to life. Like Israel passed through the Jordan River and was circumcised so that the reproach of Egypt might be rolled away. They had the outward sign, and maybe they only had a a glimmer of the inward reality. We have the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that we might be made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ. And so it's while they're then encamped at Gilgal and recovering from their circumcision that they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month. We heard that they crossed the Jordan on the 10th day of the month, and the 10th day of the month was the day that they would select the Passover lamb. And now, since they're all circumcised, four days later, they partake of the Passover on the plains of the Jordan. This also indicates that probably during the the 40 years in the wilderness, they didn't celebrate Passover. They weren't circumcised. If you're not circumcised, you can't partake of Passover. So this this is actually the first celebration of the Passover since they left Mount Sinai. And... And as they, they, they gather, they're partaking of the Passover on the plains of Jericho, right outside the, the city that they're about to... Yeah, they're encamped, perhaps even almost within sight of the great fortress of Jericho. Think of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Israel celebrates the covenant meal, the remembrance of God's great victory over Egypt, even as they are encamped within sight of the great city of Jericho. Your baptism, like Israel's circumcision, is your rite of passage, your entrance into the holy war, the spiritual war where you are called to walk by faith, trusting that God will do what he's promised. And notice what happens as Israel is circumcised, as as they eat of the Passover in the land, verse 11. On that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. There's, in a sense, a a movement from the spectacular signs of the Exodus to the ordinary signs of life in the promised land. 
The sacraments in the wilderness included the pillar of cloud and fire that led them through the Red Sea. And as we saw, the sacrament of entry into the promised land was the Ark of the Covenant that led them to the Jordan River. The sacrament of the wilderness was the manna that they ate every day and then came six days out of the week. The sacrament of entry into the promised land was eating the fruit of the land. If you're ever tempted to long for the spectacular signs of the Exodus, just remember what happened to these two generations. The generation that had the spectacular signs did not believe, did not repent, and did not enter the promised land. The generation that had the ordinary signs did believe, did repent, and did enter the promised land. And now, as the army has been cleansed, as the army has been nourished by the word and sacrament, and now as Joshua is by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. For for anybody who thinks that Joshua is a timid fellow, uh, Joshua's response isn't to run off and say, ah, help. No, Joshua went to him. He goes right up to him and says, are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? Notice the reply. No. Whose side are you on? No, Joshua. Whose side are you on? God doesn't take sides. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. You, Joshua, you're not the commander of the army of the Lord. You, Joshua, are my servant. Yes, you will cause Israel to inherit the land, but only if you humble yourself and listen to my voice. And Joshua falls on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Yes, Lord, I am your servant. You are the commander of the army of the Lord. I am your servant. This is where spiritual warfare begins. On your face before God. Spiritual warfare is not first and foremost rushing out to try to conquer. Spiritual warfare is first and foremost down on your face before God saying, what does my Lord say to his servant? Sometimes we get really busy with all of the doing of stuff. And sure, there's stuff to be done. The commander of the army of the Lord will tell Joshua what to do next. But Joshua gets the order right. When our doing of stuff gets in the way of falling flat on our faces before God, we need to reconsider where our hearts are focused. Only when we are prostrate before the commander of the army of the Lord will we we be able to hear his marching orders and then do what he actually wants us to do. So let us pray. Oh Lord, we are here before you because you are our Lord and our God. And we come to you because we recognize that we have nothing. That all of our busyness, all of our projects, all of our things that we're running around trying to get done, we are too often forgetful of what you have called us to do and to be. So help us, Lord to humble ourselves before you, to 
fall flat on our face before the commander of your army, our Lord Jesus Christ, and help us to heed your voice. And even, even as your beloved son appeared to Joshua and showed him the way that he should go, help us to hear him, to humble ourselves before him, and to seek his face. Help us, Lord, because we are weak and frail, and we are too quick to, to, to run off down our own paths and neglect and forget matters most that we bow before you and worship you. Lord, have, have mercy on us. Help us as your people to remember your steadfast love and faithfulness, to remember your mighty deeds that you have wrought in your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us and laid down his life as the atoning sacrifice that through his death and resurrection he might bring life to his people. Help us, Lord, to... to walk the way of the cross, that we might deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, trusting that you will accomplish your great purposes in, in all of everything that, we've, that we face, because you are the one who is working all things together for good, for those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. Lord, have mercy. And Lord, have mercy on all those who are suffering and afflicted. Have mercy upon those who are laid low by, by COVID. Lord, have mercy. And grant, grant wisdom to the, the doctors and the scientists who are working to try to bring cures to this. And, and have mercy on our leaders who are trying to figure out how to govern us in this time. Lord, have mercy on us that we might be a, a governable people. That we might, that we might submit to those whom you have placed over us and and honor them even even when they make mistakes lord have mercy help us to love you and to love one another and to 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 show forth the love of christ in the in the way that we we walk in our community in our neighborhoods in our in our workplaces in our schools and in every in every place where you put us lord help us to to show forth the gospel of Jesus in the way that we live, in the way that we talk, that we might that we might humble ourselves before you, trusting that in due time you will exalt us, you you will raise us up, and you will make all things right. Lord, thank you, thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, that you have not left us in our sin and misery, but that you sent your only begotten Son to join Himself to our humanity, that He might. Join us to yourself that we might have life in him before you. And Lord, be gracious to us and help us to be gracious to one another to, that we might hear each other and encourage each other and, and build each other up in the way of our most holy Savior. For we pray all this in his name. Amen.